can being a caregiver actually improve the quality of your life and add years to it too? Are men or women better caregivers? And guess what? There are actually silver linings for families who had parents with dementia during the time of COVID. Stay tuned. We cover these points and more in the next episode of Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional, and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. This is Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. My guest here today is Professor Joan Monin with the Yale School of Public Health, and her particular focus is the emotional processes affecting health in older adult relationships. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, but let me tell you, she is a pro at really understanding how we as adult children are taking care of our parents. Also, the stress and strain and other issues related around caring for a spouse or a partner who is dealing with the aspect of dementia or Alzheimer's or any sort of cognitive impairment. I will have more detail on her background in our show notes, but there's a power-packed half hour of information here, so I want to jump in really quickly and get started sooner rather than later. So Joan, thank you for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. You are a wealth of information, and I can't wait to hear more about what's going on with your work over at Yale. Thank you so much for having me, Nancy. So let's start with some of the, the work that I know that you've already done, and we posted in our Facebook group, which is called Elder Care Success. But the difference between men and women as caregivers, that's always sort of fascinated me because I have to tell you, a number of years ago, probably now like 30 years ago, I had a bad car accident and was laid up at home for a couple of months. And my husband, as a caregiver, would throw me an orange <laughs> and throw me a portable phone, which we had to get, and leave and said, I'll see you at the end of the day. Now, I'm stuck in a hospital bed, and I kind of felt like a, a monkey in a cage. And I thought, well, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to work, but <laughs> that was his response to being a quote-unquote caregiver for moi. <laughs> what are you seeing? Yeah, so it's different with spouses versus adult children or sons because with spouses, you're growing old together. You might have different things that come out come up from time to time in your life where you have to go back and forth between being a caregiver and a care recipient. But usually they are like acute situations, you get past it and you go back and forth and we find people who are like really mutually supportive in their relationships tend to do better over time. Uh oh, you know, so that's <laughs> the diagnosis on my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> people who work kind of more collaboratively, like or compensate for each other, actually tend to do better versus, you know, there's one person, it's usually the wife who's in control of the health behaviors in marriages. And that's why men tend to benefit from marriage more than women, because actually wives are just controlling more of their health behaviors over time. 
And so we find with the marriage benefit that both men and women both benefit from marriage for lots of different reasons, but men tend to benefit regardless of how satisfied the marriage is. And it's probably because there's a lot of kind of health behavior work that women do. So in terms of men and women and caregiving and spouses, um, you can imagine that when one person starts to get like more of a serious disease or a degenerative disease, that women are more likely to kind of take on that. And usually men are the ones to have more of the ailments that women have to take care of. So that tends to be like the general trend and why women are kind of more burdened as spouses. But then again, women are more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. So that means that there's a lot more male spouses having to take on this role. So it's a very increasing um, population of caregivers. Usually, you know, in the beginning of stages of dementia, it's the spouse who knows about it first. And so they're taking care of their partner kind of in isolation and they don't want other people to know about it. So there's a lot of men being faced with like, I have to take care of my wife and I don't know how to ask for help from other people because that's not part of how I was raised as a man. And you don't ask for help for things. Our family doesn't want to let everybody know that my wife has dementia because then our friends won't be friends with each other. So male caregivers may be like even more isolated than wives who are caregivers because they tend to have like their women friends that they can talk to about things. Although they also are isolated too, because oftentimes they don't want to say something about their partner to people outside of the marriage, or they want to protect their kids. They don't want the kids to know the extent of what's going on. So there's a lot of complicated factors having to do with male versus female. Mm, It is a lot. Um, Women do tend to say that they're more stressed than men in general, including caregivers. It's interesting. You talked about uh, women being more likely to get Alzheimer's or some form of dementia than men, which I didn't know about. That's that's fascinating. When And I'm thinking back now over a number of years where my mom kept on telling me there was something wrong with my dad and she kept taking him to a neurologist. Well, it turned out that she was the one who was having the problems, not dad. And dad just sort of went along with it all the time. But when she obviously was seeing some, he was seeing some sort of level of decline, he was afraid of it and didn't know what to do or to expect other than to say, she's not taking care of me. What do I do? So that sort of falls into line with almost exactly what you're talking about. And and then my father not looking for help other than to ask me as the adult child, what do I do? I don't know how to do this. What happens next? I did, like I said, I didn't realize that women were more likely to be the ones that get Alzheimer's. Do you know why that is the case or in general? I actually don't know the the, the biological reasons or um, the social reasons why that could be. But we'll have to get somebody from Yale to join us, right? Another podcast. Yeah, yeah. We need to get a sex differences uh, geriatrician, Alzheimer's disease researcher in here. When you look at caregivers from a generational perspective, though, too, there's a big number of millennials who are now starting to take over in this role as our population is is aging. And the millennials, as I know, we're sort of taken care of by the baby boomers. So I'm wondering how that is, how you're seeing that play out, if you're seeing a difference between the generation from the, the boomers taking care of adult parents versus the millennials versus the Gen X. 
because also the caregivers are getting younger in ages. I think the average caregiver was a number of years ago starting somewhere around 49, which is where I was in that range to start seeing some changes. Not that that I'm the, you know, the be all and end all, but we all always tend to self-compare. And my parents always prepared me to say what to expect that I would be the one in charge. And, you know, the older child, that's very typical, I think, whether you're male or female. But I'm curious to see if there's any difference that you're seeing in the generational aspects of caregiving. Yeah, so I mostly am seeing, you know, boomers taking care of their parents in my studies. And it's just because of most of my work has been with spouses. So, sure. you know, I'm looking at people who are 60 and over. And in my recent study that I'm doing right now, I'm seeing more younger caregivers because it's adult children. And so it'd be really interesting to see those differences. But I think over the past three decades, the burden for caregivers has increased so much more. So the intensity of care that's placed on family members to do a lot of this work, the the types of tasks that you are responsible to do as a family member are more like medical, you know, like they take actual skill. Whereas in the past, people didn't have to do those complex medical care things at home to the same degree, and they didn't have to be caregivers for as long. So so now we have people living longer periods of time with longer when care. You, when you say that people didn't have to do the extent of medical care that they do now, is that just because of the longevity factor? Or, you know, I look back at my grandmother, mom, my mom and dad didn't have the ability to take care of her in our house. So my grandmother was put into a nursing home at that time, which was typical, I think, in many cases. So the nursing home took care of the medical situations. Yeah. So like to give you an example, if you have like end stage kidney disease, now you can do peritoneal dialysis for, for instance, at home, which requires someone who's very skilled family member to hook that up, make sure it's clean, make sure that the person that you're taking care of is eating the right foods to make sure that the peritoneal dialysis doesn't cause alarms in the middle of the night. You're waking up like five times a night if there are alarms and things like that. And they're giving that equipment to older people now where they used to only give it to younger people who could do it for themselves, which means that family caregivers are the ones responsible for doing that care. And a lot of nursing homes don't do that. They only do hemodialysis. So for instance, if you want to choose that path, which they say is maybe more gentler on the system, less abrasive than hemodialysis, that means you're saying... I'm going to take that responsibility because I really care about the quality of life of my older family member, but at the cost of you having to do a tremendous amount of work to make that possible. So that's only one example, but there's lots of different technology, medical innovations being put out to families and saying, do you want to make this happen for this person? If you do, here's all the things you have to do to make that happen. That's a huge increase in, in responsibility for so many families. I get the need and desire to run and do what's, what's in our hearts as well as our heads at the same time as a caregiver. And then the level of detail and attention that needs to be placed forward in that and just sort of monitoring what's going on in the course of the day is not something that the average person 
is used to because our days happen. We may plan them out, but I'm not writing that I'm having one cup of coffee at six o'clock in the morning or seven cups of coffee by the time it's noon, which may, may be the case that I need in some cases if I'm up all night taking care of somebody. That and then also trying to keep down a job and hold that yourself. So I'm seeing a lot of stress in work environment where so many people are quite frankly, scared to death to bring that forward in the work environment to say, listen, I'm taking care of mom and dad. They may say so, but not to the level of extent to say, I have not been able to sleep at all because I don't know what to do. Or my spouse and my mom or dad have have been up all night long needing my attention. I actually had somebody who once said to me, my employer, and this was with a child that needed extensive care. So still a caregiver component, but different age range. And the employer actually told this individual, you have to make a decision between your career and your family. I was a single mom. So I can, can imagine what's going on uh, now, even more so in, in the elder care component, which is even more difficult. I, th- I think this is sort of my gross assumption that the corporation tends to have a little bit more empathy for a child relationship a little bit now, probably even more so, but it's, I'm going to be gender biased here right now. So I can do that. But there, I see the corporations being a little bit more sensitive to the male caregiver than I do the female caregiver, which is interesting. And I don't know if you've seen anything in your studies in that type of connection or whether you've even looked at it. Yeah, it's really interesting because I have looked at the equality or equity of parenting between dads and moms, and it's shifted to be much more equal. And that is not the case for older adult caregiving. There's still a huge gap in women taking on responsibility, which affects their job performance, their ability to have a job. And that doesn't necessarily make a difference whether it's because I'm even seeing women taking on the responsibility for their spouses, their in-laws at a higher level than, Mm -hmm. than their husbands jumping in to be the caregiver, which is even more interesting because there's no blood relationship other than an emotional connection because it's a husband or a partner's parents. Yeah. And I think employers are more sensitive to child caregiving, but still not really. I think there's a lot of people taking care of both children and their parents. And so there needs to be more attention to support. The sandwich generation is oozing out between the loaves of bread, I guess, really, when you think of being squished. So we've talked a little bit about just the responsibility, but in the past, you and I've had these conversations on stress and the amount of stress, I think is something, depending upon which research study you've got, I've seen anywhere between 20 to even 60% of caregivers will die, depending upon the age range, before a person that they're caring for dies. If you're, I think if you're older, over 60, you have a greater tendency to pass before the person you're caring for. How are you seeing that playing out in your research? And what do we do about some of the stress issues? Yeah, so there's been a huge debate on whether people think that caregivers have an advantage for living longer. Really? Versus, um, yeah, dying early. So there's kind of these two camps of researchers that are saying actually, if you're a caregiver, you live longer. 
And then there's other camp of researchers saying, no, that's not the case. And so actually, because you, you and I were talking about this, I scoured the literature yesterday and I was like, well, what's the answer right now? Because it keeps on changing. And I think it depends on which camp you're in, right? Sort of. But I looked at a meta-analysis. So that put all of these researchers together in this one analysis. And it looks like before you control for other things that there is an advantage that you actually live longer. It's called the healthy caregiver hypothesis that potentially it gives you meaning and purpose. It gives you like the will to live longer, you know, to take care of your partner. But then once you really look at how caregiving was defined, if it's actually like doing all the care tasks and the more kind of rigid definition of like you're actually doing high intensity caregiving, then you have the disadvantage. If you're just saying like, yeah, you know, I help take care of someone in my family, that's where you see, or if you take care of like anyone. But if you're changing the bed, you're changing the dialysis equipment, you're doing feeding tea. If you're doing right. all this stuff where you're a real involved, high intensity caregiver, that is stressful and that's showing. Yeah, it's like when the, you know, what hits the fan, you know, kind of, and you think, oh my yeah. God, I have no room to yeah. breathe for myself. What Breathe for myself. What do I do? Right. And it also matters where the study was done. So in the United States, we see more of the disadvantage. And that could be the case, you know, places like Norway and these other countries that have more healthcare benefits for caregivers and supports and elder care. They're leaving it so that a lot of the practical care gets done by the healthcare system, where the caregiving that's done by the family is more like supportive, like making sure they have like to have books read to them and like more supportive caregiving. So there's more of an emotional connection versus a hands-on connection from the caregiver in those particular environments, or is it more socially acceptable that the family unit is stronger, therefore it works better? So my take on this is actually that when you provide more supports, like from governments and things like that for the practical needs of the person, it gives more room for the family to do kind of more emotional support to the person. So oftentimes they they make to, like to make these cross-cultural comparisons, like Italians would never put their parent in a nursing home. They would make sure that they share them at home and things like that. And whereas, you know, like the stoic Norwegians, they don't care as much. So they just let the government take care, you know, of their families. Right. That's not the case at all. We all, every culture loves their family members, you know? We hope so, right? Yeah. And so I think it's like the more that the actual practical needs and like the healthcare needs of that person can be taken care of and it's not as intense for the family member themselves, then the more other types of support they can give to their family. Are you seeing any responses? Now, you're not actually working directly with the person receiving the care. Typically, you're, you're working with the caregiver themselves in your studies, correct? I'm actually working with both. So right now, we're doing the study with persons with early stage dementia. So we're talking with them, asking them all the same question at questions as their adult child. So we're really able to see from both people's point of view how things are going and how they communicate with one another. 
Because what I'm really interested in, especially with adult children and their parents, is how their relationship changes over time. Mm. You know, because that's a mom and a, a kid, you know, from a whole history. And it, just because your parent starts to have needs doesn't mean they're still not your parent and that you don't still have needs from them. So it's just, you can't just say, one person's a caregiver and one's a care recipient in the real world because we're not, we're both caregivers and care recipients to each other in so many different ways. So I try to ask people who are in my studies what their private feelings are about the relationship and then have them to come together and talk to each other. So that's a very unique position to be in because typically we don't hear the information about what's happening inside the head and the heart, I'll call it, of the recipient of the care. What are you seeing and hearing from those individuals as it relates to how they see their future going and what they hope for their caregivers or family members who are stepping in to do this work? A lot of the people who have the early signs of dementia or cognitive decline were caregivers for their parents. So they, they kind of know what it's like. And I think sometimes they're worried, like, I don't want to put you in a position like I was in. To be a burden to their to their family, which is a horrible thinking. Yeah, right? and and then just it's wonderful though because often when they express these kind of thoughts to their adult child, they'll be like, "Mom or Dad, you're you're not going to be a burden," and I'm glad that we're having this conversation. So it's really kind of therapeutic, even just hearing from both people what's on their mind and their worries about the future. I think another thing is that. Because people have experienced this with their parents, they try to set up things for the future for their children a little bit better. So like if they have to move to a new house or something like that in the future, they make sure they don't have all the stuff in the basement that they've been storing for millions of years, like still there, like maybe trying to get rid of some of it. So that mother-in-law, the Hummels, right? (laughs) (laughs) So maybe their children don't have to go dismantle a gigantic house if they ever have to be. I'm just wondering because having this conversation about any kind of cognitive impairment, dementia, Alzheimer's, just frailty in general, I see people, it happened in our family, where we talked about what would happen if, but it was very practical from a POA, medical, legal, financial. It wasn't the emotional conversation other than we, quote unquote, don't want to be a burden to you kids. So we're going to go into a care facility and this is how we're going to set it up until it just became too ridiculously costly and the quality of the care wasn't there. That's a whole nother story. But the conversation about the emotional connection never really happened, which was interesting. And so what I'm hearing in the study is that it is happening in your study. I'm wondering if there's a way that we should be thinking about that conversation in addition to all the technical and legal and medical conversations that we have to have. What sort of guidelines or recommendations do you have other than to say, you know, mom and dad, we know that this is what you want us to do to be in charge, but let's talk about the rest of it. How do we bridge that conversation? Because that's not an easy one. Yeah. I mean, 
I think people want to get the the legal things and the decision making things. They're important. Uh, down first, yeah. But then there's not really like people don't want to dwell on it or kind of get into this stuff in their regular life. So you rip the bandaid off, just get it done, right? <laughs> <laughs> Being in my study, you know, that's part of it. Is like, what's your worry for the future? And I think people are like, I wouldn't normally have that conversation you know, with my mom or my dad, just because you don't want to think about those things. We want to go about our our days not thinking about the hard times. Difficult moments are the happy times. Yeah. But I think it is good to have along with those other practical things about do not resuscitate type of things, but also to say, what are my emotional needs? And they may change because depending on what the disease is, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes people get scared and they change their wishes. So having maybe overarching ideas about what they want for the future could also be helpful along with the very nitty gritty specific decisions. Do you have any particular types of questions or even just points in conversation that are coming up between person with early onset dementia and the caregiver that have been sort of surprising? Just trying to think of ways to say this that would bridge it, that make a conversation like that a little easier. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's more about the adult child kind of wanted maintaining safety and just good health habits and not having their um, parent be susceptible to scams and things like that. And so that's kind of what dominates a lot of the conversations. But once in a while, they'll talk about things that are more about what they're afraid of. Yeah, what they're afraid of, what they want their future relationships to be like, especially with grandchildren too, and involving them and wanting them to stay in their lives, both from the the, the grandparent wants the grandchild to stay in the life. Yeah, both actually, like just maintaining that having kids see um, not having them be like hid away from other and protected from seeing the decline. Exactly. Just making sure that the whole family's in it together, supporting this person and how important of a lesson that is to all the generations in a family. Do you find that's different across the country or in other areas? Because we talked about geographic from a caregiving perspective in general from a government support and a healthcare system support. But I'm wondering if different areas of the U.S., you're seeing that conversation shift or change at all. I mean, a lot of adult children live far away from their parents now because of jobs and things like that. And one thing that we've really seen in the pandemic, because we had to change to all remote visits, like we couldn't have people come into the lab anymore and have these conversations. So we ended up having it be on Zoom video conference. And actually, people were really excited about that because they got to learn the technology to be able to connect more readily with their adult children in far places. And so now they were like, oh, well, we could do this more often, not just for a study. So that's been kind of nice. And I think technology is really helpful for making sure that families who have kind of dispersed stay connected. So I think maybe a silver lining was kind of 
making our society more capable of bringing people together in ways that were not possible or people didn't want to try to learn, you know, before because they didn't need to, but then they just didn't end up seeing each other. But there are definitely populations within the U.S. that are more intergenerational households. And there it's different than maybe white upper class household that's kind of everyone lives in a separate place. Did you find that any of the people that you were working with were unable to fit, I think of socioeconomic com- component too, not every region has aspect or every household has has a connection to a computer. And that was evident in the education system in more impoverished cities that just buy a, a laptop or a computer for a child is, is not easy, or they may not even have had access to, to cable or some internet connection where, excuse me, where we're moving, trying to get cable in some of the more rural communities was very, very difficult. So it made, it was a priority in our issues. But if we didn't know about that, we would have been lost in the woods <laughs> instead of lost in space. Kind of felt like the same way. Did you see any of that? I mean, because you were connecting on Zoom, so that made it probably a little bit more difficult. Definitely. It was harder. It's harder to reach people who don't have technology resources available. And it just really highlights the inequities. And it's really a healthcare right to have technology because all of the health doctor's visits are virtual now, right? In many were, were virtual. So it just meant that you couldn't go to the doctor if you didn't have that ability to connect to the internet or to be able to do these video conferences. So really internet, I think is a huge like social intervention that would do a lot just by itself to be able to connect. Just a health initiative to think yeah. about considering that from, though, if you're writing your senators or... <laughs> Congressman, maybe you want to consider that as part of the healthcare. Yeah, and and the mobile phones. So I think Obama put those into place for older adults. I don't know what the state of that is right now. With um, that, I don't. I don't know. I know it's difficult for because we got some a, a number of questions over time on related to what types of phones would be helpful for an older person, especially somebody who's got neuropathy. That's difficult to work on a your your typical smartphone. But there are some phones out there, big buttons kind of things on it. And the iPads are actually pretty helpful for a lot of people because they're just so easy to use. And so some of my colleagues and I actually gave a whole bunch of iPads to a nursing home in New Haven. And it was just had such great benefits without even having to do anything. The staff were like, this was amazing. It gave so much more privacy to the people connecting with their families. It allowed us to have telehealth visits so we didn't have to ship the person out. There are just so many benefits to it. So if you're thinking about interventions for caregivers, think simple, just give them some iPads. And that just changed a whole bunch. And the earphones were will work better, you know, that you can plug in just because any hearing loss issues, you get a better connection in, in a headphone that way. To actually, I have to laugh because I didn't think about it. I had given my dad and mom a, a tablet at one point, and the aides were learning how to use it. This is a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. When they held it, I had lovely conversations with the nasal passages of my father. <laughs> Just because he could see me, but all I could see was like this part of the nose. 
my grandfather would do that too. And sometimes he would call me and not know it. And so I would just call of a nose and I would be like, Grandpa, you're calling me right now. This is really Joan. That's funny. I am curious if there are any like, oh my God, we never even thought about this or surprise pop-ups that came from any of the studies that you've done with adult children and even the early stage onset that you didn't anticipate finding. Yeah. So actually some of the work that I've been doing has really been focusing on positive emotion expression, you know, when caregivers and care recipients communicate with each other. And I was thinking more of, oh, caregivers would use more like humor and positive emotions, and that would be beneficial for care recipients. But actually, we kind of find that the more that care recipients are using humor and laughter is hugely beneficial for caregivers. So again, we were talking about it's it's a relationship between two people. It's not just a caregiver taking care of someone and we're not asking anything to the care recipient. So let me just clarify. You yeah. said when the care recipient is using humor or when the caregiver is using humor or both? The care recipient using more humor to the caregiver makes it much less stressful for the caregiver to take care of them. Got it. I can see that. You know, the, the comment that I would get was thumbs up and we'd be SOL without you. (laughs) Darn right, dad. Yeah. (laughs) And we'd laugh. Where did you learn SOL? This is not something I expect 98 year old guy to come up with. I mean, and you have to appreciate that if you're being kind of like taking care of all the time, and a lot of your freedom is taking away from you, that it's really hard to be in that position. And it probably makes you kind of grumpy a lot of the time. But the more that you actually kind of express positivity to the people around you, it makes it so much easier for everybody. Not that you should feel like burdened to do so. We're just finding that caregivers tend to just feel so much better when they know, A, that their loved one appreciates what's going on, B, that they're happy because they X, Y, and Z was done, and C, that they're laughing and doing well. But I think that also has to do with the fact that when caregivers see their loved ones suffering, that's particularly stressful for caregivers. It doesn't matter how much you're doing to take care of that person. It's more actually about how much you think your partner is suffering that really is the hugest caregiving health indicator of all. And you can't do anything about it. Exactly. You feel like you don't have control and that the person that you love is no longer feeling like they are having a good existence. If you think that, that's the hardest thing for caregivers. And sometimes caregivers will overestimate the amount of suffering in the care recipient. And so having these conversations, like being like, how are you feeling? Or what's going on with you? Sometimes you may learn that they're not in as much pain as that you thought they were. And you can't get worse than thinking that they're in so much pain, which is we that's what we tend to go to, right? It's like, oh, they must be in so much pain, but maybe they're not. Right. They just may be thinking about it or not, or not at all. They may look like they're in pain just because they're older and more mm-hmm. frail. So just thinking about that lighthearted conversation to be able to, to bring the discussion forward, constantly asking somebody, you know, how they're feeling, are you doing okay, is 
I, I heard my folks and I've heard other people say, just leave me alone. I'm okay. It can be annoying. <laughs> just yeah, go exactly. away. Yeah. It's okay. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep for five hours. It's okay. <laughs> Whatever it might be. But having those fun moments. So the photographs of the that I saw, because I was a long distance caregiver in many, most of the time. And seeing photos of, of my dad with like blue, blue icing all over his face. <laughs> and a big smile because they had played with icing and decorated cupcakes. You knew that they were having fun. That in itself made me feel a huge relief to say, okay, today was a good day. That's good. That's good, yeah. right? And just being able to laugh even I, w- I wasn't there. Yeah. And doing stuff that you like to do too with the person, right? So you're not just like humoring them as well. You grew up together. You, sh- I mean, they brought you up. You should exactly. know what they like, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, so in my study, we have adult children and their parents do like name that tune with each other so that one starts and the other one finishes. <laughs> And it's so fun because in a lot of these studies, it's always kind of like doom and gloom, like, you know, you're suffering or distressed or stressed and things like that. But this is still a relationship between two people with positive aspects and negative aspects. And I think it's interesting to see how people are able to connect and and maybe like who struggles to connect too and like the reasons for that. Ooh, and if you w- didn't connect as as a young as a child or a young adult, then it makes it probably even more difficult later on as as well hopefully hopefully we as caregivers or adults ourselves have matured and been able to bridge that gap in conversation a little bit more just to to have the conversation. And break that uncomfortable. Yeah, and that's a great point too, is that, you know, maybe you didn't have a good relationship before you had to be a caregiver. And a lot of people don't have a choice to be a caregiver. And so kind of just making yourself think like, oh, I have to have a good relationship with this person. Maybe it's not possible. And you need to give yourself a break on that. Because just because someone is getting older and sick doesn't mean that that's changed who they are and your relationship with that person. But you can be compassionate and in the best way you can. But these are real relationships. It's not something where you should do X, Y, and Z because you're a caregiver. Yeah, I think it's important to understand the, the difference between compassion and empathy. To be able to understand the situation that somebody's in and trying to address it without being an annoyance but still being aware of it versus being empathetic where you feel the pain that the other person Mm -hmm. has is very different and may help the caregiver a little bit under to be able to separate and divorce yourself from the actual feeling of how that person is versus understanding how they feel. Yeah. And we find people that are dealing with really hard situations like this, that if they take kind of more of like the third person viewpoint, sometimes, sometimes you Mm -hmm. need to remove yourself from the I perspective and kind of be like talking about it from above because sometimes it's too intense. So can you give me an example of, is it more like, you know, how I feel versus how I and you basically taking that out altogether? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like still acknowledging what's going on there, still being present with it, seeing what's happening, not trying to say, oh, this isn't happening, but kind of putting up a glass barrier there. So you're on the other side, you're protecting your own self and nurturing your own self. With also the awareness of what's going on with the person, but kind of just removing yourself, trying to be a little bit more objective. Diagnostician versus... Yeah, like as if you were like a healthcare provider or something like that. 
it doesn't mean you're not being sensitive to that person, but it is so important to take care of your own emotional needs. Because if you are so enmeshed in the pain of another person, you're not going to be a good caregiver. It's kind of like that annoying thing you have to put on the the mask on you, (laughs) the oxygen mask on you before you you can put it on your child. Most people wouldn't do that. No, we probably, yeah, we put it on the the child first and then... Yeah, I'd probably try to put it on my kid first and then pass out. But that's... I had a conversation a couple of months back with a, a fellow who is in that position, did not have a good relationship with his parents. And said, I, oh, this is a horrible story, but I'm going to share it anyway, because it happens to some people. He said, I absolutely hate my mother. She's an awful person. I don't want to have any relationship with her. My sister doesn't want to have any relationship with her. She's sort of just a hateful soul. My father, who is now her ex-husband for many years, doesn't want to have anything to do with her. She's, and she's a burden. You know, what do we do? How do we handle? You know, ultimately, it was... If this is if this is your ball and chain, as much as I hated making that dis, that this conversation, is you need to find a way to to cut that cord and let somebody else be responsible for her if that's the case. And that's ultimately he said, "Thank you." I mean, I didn't know I could do that, but it just made such a difference in his life, and it may have made a difference in his mom's life if he if she found I don't know what happened, but if she found somebody who was able to to be there for her and really care enough to make sure that. Her needs were met. It was t- it was tough to hear, very difficult to hear. Hopefully, there aren't too many of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But thanks for sharing that too, because people may be holding guilt for different situations like that, and just knowing that they're not alone is really important. Because caregiving can be a loving thing, but it also can be something that is seen more as a duty and. A burden. Yeah, and, and then a burden. So there's different ways of thinking about that. And that can have costs for your health, too. And it's not always 100% caring and loving. Sometimes, it, you know, you, you do it because you want to and you love your parents or a spouse. But there are still times that your own life gets in the way of being there for them. And that's a hard. It's also difficult knowing when you have to you have to say, not now, not today. I can't do that. So it's mm-hmm. the caregiver. I've found over the years that being a caregiver is is knowing when to set boundaries so that you can be there for them even more so when needed. And that's that takes a that takes some time and practice. Definitely. Are there any last minute or things that are must have, must do, should do better kind of scenarios that we should know? as a result of your work and your own experience in in this environment? Yeah, I mean, the caregiving interventions that researchers have put together are really effective. So now we just need to get them out to the healthcare system to like big businesses to do like healthcare plans and things like that. So that's where we are with trying to just disseminate them because they're even more effective than any of the drugs that are really coming out. You know, so they have these Alzheimer's disease, new drugs coming out with such small effects. But if you look at like these preventive caregiver interventions, they have way larger effects. But how things are set up, these caregiving interventions, because they're psychosocial, wouldn't go to the FDA. So there's no pathway for them to be disseminated, like no prescriptions to be written. And I think if there was just more like cost effectiveness work potentially to show the benefits of these, then maybe we could get them out there. 
But that's a really where we need to be going right now. First, and it would have huge benefits to our society. But I don't. No one's listening yet. But hopefully they will. Well, I'm listening, so you'll share all that information that you have, and we'll put that in the show notes so people at least listening here can yeah. have access to that. And believe me, I've got a big mouth, so I can. <laughs> Maybe not large enough at times, but I will make sure that I'll roar loud for you. And then another thing is that my studies and this opportunity to connect with your parents or your child, if you're listening, we send tablets in the mail. So this is really accessible to anyone. If you want to tell us about your experiences, have some conversations with your family that you just haven't had time to have yet. People are finding that this is really therapeutic. And then we're also just learning a ton about how to help people earlier in the caregiving experience. Because right now, we're really just tackling the times where it's super burdensome for caregivers or we're in crisis mode. And what we need to be doing is kind of having a lot of this set up in advance. But no one wants to do that. <laughs> but the more we we talk about this and the more we try to make interventions or programs for this, then we can help like the next generation. I think in general, people don't want to admit that there is a time in their lives that they will need help. It's especially for able-bodied adults. But that said, there's nothing like planning for the future to make the future even better, right? Yeah, it's what you either are a caregiver, will be a caregiver, or you'll be cared for, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you, Joan. As always, it's been a pleasure. I know that we'll probably have other discussions down the road, but this one is especially important. And I appreciate you and everything that you're doing. We'll put notes for everybody, as well as links to some of the studies that Joan is doing and her staff up at Yale School of Public Health. They are critically important, both to those who are dealing with early onset and the relationship between spouse or caregiving partners in the family, as well as just what's happening intergenerationally and from a gender perspective. It's very good work, and it's something that we all need to participate in if you have the time and ability to do so. Believe me, I participate in the study. It doesn't take a lot of time, and it will benefit all of us. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for all that you're doing, Nancy. It's just incredibly amazing, the the support that you're giving people with sharing your stories and all of your skills. Life is a story, and that's how we learn, right? So take care. Have a great day. And we'll see you on the next show of Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. Take care. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC. 